Hi, my name is Lukas Langa. And my name is Pablo Galindo. And this is the Core.py podcast, a new podcast where we discuss internals of CPython and our adventures in making a new version of your favorite programming language. Today, we'll be talking about imports and recent changes to Python. The real question is when it will be time to stop saying a new podcast. Well, maybe it's not time yet, like we are already two episodes in, but now this is the third, so this is still a little soon, I guess. Uh, but we don't know how to count to four, so it's fine. <laughs> everybody, now you cursed safe. us. Okay, we need to get to the fourth episode. Oh no, mm-hmm. now I'm scared. Oh, or we can start naming the episodes 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, and so on. And as a release manager, I missed the opportunity to start naming the releases, like, you know, Slow Turtle, or like... Fast wolf, or like you know, all this, all this funny. Oh, funny bionic names. beetle, yeah, and so on, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm terrible at naming things, so I was happy not to have to do that. So you know, kind of uh, to, to each his own. The real question is, are you good at importing things, Gukesh? Right. I am efficient at importing things that I need to import. Sometimes the import system will be a little stubborn, but usually I can convince it to do what I need. But I recently actually had to help somebody with an issue that you know looked like an import system issue and it turned out to be just a miscompiled uh, SO and a bunch of files that were just lying around inside packages. So what was happening was weirder than the, the person thought because some of the not actually installed modules left directories behind and because of this, uh, the import system now tried to import this and you know, weird things were happening. Right. So I thought, how about we actually talk about the import system in Python and how it does things? Just for a while, like, we don't need to go into too much detail there, but just a bit about like how this thing is constructed because it is surprisingly complex. You, know, you just write import OS, you don't really think about what's happening, or import NumPy. But uh, there is uh, quite a lot of depth beneath. Right, and I think it's one of these parts of CPython or Python in general when if you joke and say, don't worry, nobody really understands what's going on when you import something, they might be true, like they might be right, right? Like maybe maybe there is, you know, a lot of people that understand 80% of it, but I'm sure there is some dark corner of what is executed when you import something that many people don't know. So so how about we actually talk about the high level? Right. The summary is actually quite easy, uh, at least like, you know, because we have worked quite uh, hard to hide all the dirt under the <laughs> under the covers and all the names. Yeah. But the summary is very easy. When you say uh, I want to import something, uh, the first thing the Python does is check if it's already imported, right? And and this is uh, we store the modules in sysdot modules, and if it's there, you just return it. Um, you can actually use this hack to just put something there, and it, it will be returned. Like if you put a list and then you import something, it will be returned from sys modules because we just checked there. Uh, obviously, most of the modules will not be imported when you start Python. Uh, so the the next thing Python does is that okay, so we, we need to find it. So it sets the the import path I think to none, which is quite surprising because. Sometimes when something goes wrong, it, that none appears somewhere. So, so it's, it's good to know that the first thing we do is setting the module search path to none. And then what we do is that we need to uh, figure out all the, you know, if, if you're importing from somewhere, so you say from numpy.array is import something, uh, obviously if you have not imported numpy before, you need to import it now because, you know, like there is some dependencies there. So if the module has a parent module, uh, you need to import first the parent module. So this process is obviously recursive. And then you need to set that a bunch of 
specific attributes like underscore underscore path and all these these things depending on the different dots. Uh, then once you have uh, taken care of all of that, uh, then the funny words start. So the, the thing that you need to do right now is that find the module spec, uh, which Wukesh, I'm sure you're going to describe it in a second. <laughs> sure. But once you find the module spec, which basically is, is, is like half of where the module is and like how to load it. Yeah. Uh, but when you, you find it, there is like an algorithm that, that uh, works there just to know how to find the module and, and how to load it. But once you have it, uh, then you start calling it like so. This is an object that tells you like how to you know open these modules, uh, find them, and uh, execute them. Uh, but when you and everyone will have a different one, right? So it's not the same to import a .py object that to import a set object. So you know there is different specs here. Yep. And when you have the module, you call the spec to load it, and uh, you add it to the dictionary of the parent module because obviously you know if you have numpy array, then it has to be an array attribute on the module numpy. And after that, you put it in sys.modules and you just return it. So when you say import something, then there you go. Cool. Uh, so like, let's go into a little bit more detail. Importers in Python are actually split into two things. Like first, before you import the module, you need to find it. So we actually have those objects called finders, and you can implement your own and put it in sysmetapath uh, that will allow you to find where a module lives. Usually, it either is built in or it's available in some frozen state that we're going to talk about later, or it's just on the file system. But it can also be in a zip file. It can also be in a database if you implement that. So you know, if, if you want to, you can actually plug into the import system to extend it. So the finders are only kind of interested in just localizing like where is the actual data that I need uh, to fetch to actually be able to, you know, kind of uh, load a module, but it doesn't do the loading. That's uh, actually something that is uh, happening later. Right. So what the finder is returning is it's returning a module spec, and that is all the metadata that is needed for a loader to actually do the loading. So you know, kind of now you were decoding uh, the actual bytes or whatever, uh, and turning them into something that we can put in sys modules. Right. So the interesting thing about this is that beyond regular Python files storing source code or bytecode in case of PYC files, you can load Python modules from any other data structure. Wow. Uh, I used to work for a company that provided banking software like back in the day, that was before I was a core developer. Uh, and one requirement that we had at some point to disallow the bank itself tampering with the system was uh, to encrypt the source code that we were providing to the customer, right? The bank was a customer. Very responsible. Yeah, well, yes. So, you know, we could actually do this and we had a um, PEP302 hook where that we could use uh, for decrypting the bytes that we had with some AES key that was shipped in some SO file so it wasn't very easily kind of findable. Obviously if somebody wanted and you know they went to a debugger they could find the actual decryption routine and they could find the key and whatnot but it wasn't so much about making it impossible to decrypt our source code it was about making it really inconvenient for 
for the customer to make changes, right? Because it is extremely convenient otherwise for users of Python to just change one file and just re-execute the Python interpreter and see what's changed, right? You can put prints, but you can also just put entire new pieces of functionality or remove pieces of functionality where some feature was uh, gated behind some, I don't know, paywall or whatever else, right? Right. Yeah, I do it all the time. I, I Sometimes when I debug in something and the problem or is in somewhere else's package or even in the standard library, I just edit the file and I break point and it breaks there. So it's very convenient to be able to edit the files. Uh, when I'm using Visual Studio Code uh, to actually develop CPython, every now and again it would lose you know, the current interpreter, which should be the one that I'm just building right now, the one that I'm working on. Like every now and again, like when you clean uh, your state of repository, there is no python.exe on my uh, checkout anymore. Uh, it's temporary, but it's not there. So VS Code would be like, okay, there's no interpreter, so let me find a different one. And it would find some different one. So when I oh, I'm, I know where this is going. Yeah. So sometimes when I'm just actually switching to some other file to just make like a short edit, just to see like you know like what I'm doing, or actually make an edit that I wanted. So to change Python, what I'm changing is I'm changing the standard library of some installed Python, like different version. <laughs> man, man, I have, I have created entire PRs in the installed version of Python, and then I do get the status, and there is nothing. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the the like how how much time until actually like I looked at the path of VS Code? It's like oh you are yeah. editing exactly PyM blah 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 like Jesus man like that that problem. I am I am getting better at this, but still every now and again I would just look at this and it's like this file looks a little too clean. And then I'm looking and it's three ten. Right. Like, oh yeah, of course it was so easy mm. back in three ten days. Developing is hard. <laughs> but in any case, like we were talking about imports, right? So you found a module with a finder. Um, uh, you loaded a module with a loader, and now you know you have a bunch of modules in your sys module, so you can import them, right? But that's essentially just the modules on the path that we know, and that surprisingly does not include any location where pip install would put new packages, right? Because this is an add-on on top of built-in Python imports. In fact, that add-on is using. Uh, how the import system is pluggable to add new paths and to allow for more functionality. And this is all found in SitePY. Can you talk about this, Pablo? Yeah, SitePY is probably one of the dark corners when like we start dumping all the weird stuff there. Like you know, there is several Lovecraftian monsters lurking there. So so SitePY is like when all the like logic that you know someone like modifying the import system says, now nah, they shouldn't be here. So they put it inside of PY. And right now, like side of PY does a lot of things. So it, it basically sets up all these, like, you know, okay, let, let, like it adds side packages and certain other folders to the standard lookup path. So you install NumPy, you can actually do import NumPy, and that works because otherwise Python wouldn't know that, you know, where is NumPy, right? Because this may surprise some people, pip is not actually part of CPython. That's its own thing. Like technically, you could have pop, and that can <laughs> be as good as it, right? As long as we just say, you know, we hard coded here a path called side packages. Um, you just put the stuff there, but right, but like that is the, 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 the all that we do in C Python. Right. But side of PY does a bunch of other weird things. For instance, uh, do you know that when you just type Python and then you enter the Python REPL, you can do a bunch of extra things that you cannot do in normal files. For instance, you can, and this is like a bit, there is a bit of a drama regarding some of these things. Uh, so you can type 
um, exit. And then what happens when you type exit, Gukesh? Uh, it will tell you like, ah, oh, if you actually want to exit, you need to call. Exactly. Oh man, you, you that, that's you are a core developer, right? Because <laughs> you know you know the drill. <laughs> you need to call exit because exit is not a command; it's a instant of a class called exiter. Man, software, software development is fantastic. So where is this exit coming from? It's certainly not a keyword. The parser doesn't understand that. So it turns out that site.py, when you start the interpreter, this file is automatically loaded. So site.py instantiates this exiter nonsense and then it injects it into the global namespace. So when you type exit and it tells you, bad boy, you need to call exit, what you're actually seeing is the ripple of the Exeter instance. How beautiful is that? And there were some people which, you know, like with a lot of, uh, you know, they, they have a real point here. That is that if you know that the user is trying to exit, well, you, you just don't exit, right? And, you know, it turns out that because we implemented this with a hack and not with a proper REPL, you know, uh, this, this may be a hint of what is coming soon. Uh, maybe we fix this. But uh, because we implemented it with a hack, well, we cannot just exit because if printing the Exeter object just exits the interpreter, can you, can you imagine how funny it will be that someone is printing all the objects in, you know, uh, the global namespace and suddenly the interpreter exits. Uh, not a great experience. Well, fantastic, actually. My, my job here is done. <laughs> you, you will never know what's going on. Look, I print this list and it just exits. Uh, works as intended. Um, but other things that it does is that it sets, like, for instance, completion in the REPL. So every time you press tab, it, it completes what you want. So that's the real line completion that side.py also does. Uh, it loads also site customize, which is this other file that you know people can put in the system. And this is more focused not to use it; it's for people managing the Python installation. Sometimes it's you, but some, most of the time it's you know the sysadmin or whatever. So to inject like custom stuff there, that is like site.py but for normal people. Um, and yeah, it also in, like injects helper and copyright and a bunch of things. So yes, site.py is full of marvels. Yeah, and it already kind of imports quite a bit of uh, things from the standard library. And it's like, a, it's, it's, it's you an know interesting... About it, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting uh, piece of code uh, in the standard library. So uh, if you're like, okay, where does it live? Well, it, it is just part of the standard library, uh, like any other module. Like You can find it in lib site.py. You can read for yourself what it, uh, what it is doing. So yeah, I, I highly recommend you do that, and, you know, to understand like, oh, like how is it that we actually have site packages, and why are they called site packages? Well, because of site py. Ah, right, right. But you can you 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 forgot the actual, you know, like all of these academic descriptions are cool. But the interesting thing that people probably want to know is how all the evil things that you can do with this like import system hooks and whatnot. Because if you are in control of how do I find the files and how do I execute the files, then you can do a bunch of weird stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah, well, you you said that you can import things that are not in Python modules, right? So for instance, the normal thing would be extension modules, but that, those are the boring ones. Something that you can do, you implement your own, you know, loader in this case, uh, probably find it as well because you need to change the the um, suffix. Is that you can implement a loader for, let's say, images, so you can have like, you know, import my image.png. And it will return you a NumPy array with the image, so you know you can have a super coarse Python module when you you import uh, images that way or training data for you know machine learning or whatever. That is kind of weird, and you know nobody will be able to understand uh, your code base. Uh, but actually, we do this as well uh, in some places. For instance, CPython can actually import zip files. Yes. But yeah, like uh, another example of things that you can do, which are a bit evil, that um, actually some people do is to uh, go even before all these like import system stuff 
and go to the codex module. Uh, I think in the last episode we mentioned something about like this precisely. But before any of this important thing happens, you need to be able to decode the source code, right? And for that, uh, Python has this whole codex collection that you can also hook into it, and you can say, well, you know, in the same way, UTF-8 and uh, other codex, you know, allow you to understand like what Python files are and like to make sense of the actual characters. You can just, you know, add your own. And it cannot be a code, actually. It can do some weird things. So some people, what they like to do is install some random codecs and literally change the source code. Uh, and that's, for instance, I think some of these hacky packages that uh, some people like to do, like, you know, backports or f-strings or something like that. So what they do is that they install these hacky codecs and then they change the source code. Right. So when they detect an f-string, they change the, the source code into the actual like function call that does all the locals and all that One stuff. cool thing that I saw that did use this was like at Dropbox, they had this thing called Pixel that was embedded HTML in Python. So some, some something that, you know, kind of React now also has in JavaScript. So like the equivalent of this in Python, where you could literally just like start opening tags and closing tags and, you know, just, just directly in your source code. And it wouldn't just translate this to a string, like the, those were actual Python objects and so on and so on. So, you know, uh, this was fully traversable and, you know, kind of uh, could work with some other libraries that they had, but uh, the way you expressed it was visibly HTML in your Python code, right? And the way that right. it worked was by hooking into codecs, so, you know, providing a pixel codec that could actually just in time transform all this HTML into those boring, regular Python object instantiations. I think right now there is, there is, I mean, I don't know if soon, but I know that Guido and some other people are working on this idea of tag strings, which may be a better solution for this. So the same way now you have F strings and then you say F and then your string and then your string now is magical and can you know do a bunch of interpolation. So you could say HTML and then a string yes, and it will do that. It will transform the string into those HTML objects and you can have like this will be pluggable so you can do SQL and then a string and it will you know check that SQL is valid or like you know a linter may be able to hook into that and validate that. It doesn't do weird, you know, dependencies, uh, injection, SQL injection, and things like that. So uh, still, like obviously, there is not even a pen for this right now. But um, but that that is, I think, something that I think uh, there is a prototype somewhere. I think tag strings is called. Yeah, yeah. So so th this is interesting. And one kind of particular detail about the string prefixes is that, say, you have R strings, so like raw strings, right? right. Uh, most uses of those are in regular expressions. So in VS Code, when you're writing regular R strings, like lowercase r, mm -hmm. it will automatically highlight the inside of that string as a regular expression. This is not something that you want every time, though, because sometimes it's really some raw string that has nothing to do with regular expressions. So if you want that and you don't want uh, VS Code to format it that way, to highlight it like this, uh, what you will do is you will uh, use the uppercase R string prefix, which is the <laughs> same thing for Python. No way. Python doesn't differentiate, but now the highlighter will understand, okay, this is actually raw, like right, this uppercase right. raw. This is not a regular expression. So initially black, 
uh, with um, kind of making all string prefixes kind of the same, right? It was making things consistent. And I had to like make this one special case for R uppercase because people are like, oh, this is breaking my syntax highlighting in VS Code. Oh boy. And I was like, what? Oh boy. How? But you know, and then I learned about this kind of obscure feature, uh, which is still there. Like to this day, you can actually see this. This is, this is actually pretty cool. So like what I would like from the syntax highlighter personally would be for it to not even attempt, not at all, to format any braced expressions in regular strings. Just make them the same color as the entire string. Just show me that they are not evaluated because to this day, every now and again, I would forget the F in an F string. Right. And the, and VS Code is kind of lying to me. It's like, oh, look, this is nicely, you know, formatted because it's trying to say, okay, those are places that you can now hook into with dot .format, right? Because this is what it thinks. Right. But like that is useless to me. Like I I I don't want this. What I would like is for me to understand you are not writing an F string right now. This is a regular string. Like put the F there and suddenly it highlights differently. Right. Because it still does obviously, right? It, you know, the actual expression inside are more colorful like you know they have different colors but my brain doesn't register this nuance it only registers okay it syntax highlights so it's fine uh, it's not always fine but yeah well we kind of digress we, well we I think you mentioned you mentioned before something like too fast you say like oh there is this frozen modules thing and I don't think we we explain any of this so can can you just cover like and explain a bit what are these frozen modules yeah so back in the ice ages that's, that's how all the great stories start uh, there are actually a bunch of things called freeze in Python. Uh, so just to get this out of the way, there is tools freeze, which is not what we're going to be talking about right now. Tools freeze is something like PyInstaller or, you know, kind of... Um, PyExe or whatever, something that allows you to just bundle your code with a Python interpreter so that people who don't have Python installed on their box can run your program. Uh, this is actually pretty cool. Like You can try this out like on, on your own code. Uh, there are libraries built around this functionality. Right. Uh, we ship it as part of Python just to be just to make sure that you know like we still have working functionality that allows all the hooks needed right. like for um, this kind of compression of your thing like to one file work. So this is not the freeze I mentioned at the start of the episode. Right. What we're talking about here is the ability of Python to ship with already some code objects, some module code objects preloaded into the interpreter, right? So you might think of the sys module as one that comes with Python. There is no sys.py. That one is actually even more special. It is uh, hand-coded. But a bunch of other modules have to be part of uh, the interpreter itself because they take part in the interpreter's initialization or for other reasons. And, you know, this is why they are frozen. You can see this when you display the wrapper of such a module. Try ABC. ABC is a good example there. You will see that it is uh, frozen in parentheses. 
uh, you'll still find the abc.py file, but the reason why it tells you it's frozen is that if you'd made any changes to the abc.py on disk, you would notice that they are not in fact being uh, read back. They're not being included in a restarted Python process. This is because Python instead is reading from its internal frozen version of this module. Right. Originally, the import system in Python was written in C. And this is where all this kind of, you know, scare of what does the import system do come from, right? Because at the time, it was very hard for us to follow the logic of the import system does this first and this next. So Brett Cannon, some 15 years back, has this idea like, how about we rewrite this in Python? And obviously, if you do this, this would be, uh, first of all, slower. But second of all, there's some chicken and egg problem there. Uh, we are trying to make the import system that Python itself is using work. So how do we do this? So Brett devised a way where he wrote the initial crucial part of importing in Python, but that part that bootstraps the entire system needed to be included in the interpreter. Right. So he also added a tool that froze this part, this bootstrap part of importing into a header file that includes essentially the same marshaled bytecode that you would get if you created a PYC file, but it is now part of the Python interpreter, making it uh, independent of whatever is happening on the file system, and also making it much faster to actually initialize this part, because you don't have to uh, look for it anywhere on the file system. Right. Now it was still kind of producing something that was equivalent with the same uh, CAPI calls and so on in the end, but uh, we at least could follow the logic looking at the Python file uh, way easier. It is not regular Python in the sense that it cannot just import anything, right? Including sys, they cannot do anything. Like you, you inject a bunch of things to this bootstrapping uh, import lib part. But you know, you can still read it pretty clearly. You can still see some of those things that we were talking about in implementation and you don't need to know C to follow it. So that was pretty cool. But that was then, right? Like that was the original story of why freezing was added to Python in the first place. But then once it was there, it was just a matter of time people would want to use it for more things, right? Right, and and actually the one of the interesting parts that happened here is uh, one of the uh, part of the work that the Fastly Python team did in uh, 3.11. If you type Python, just Python, or even Python minus Z pass, which is the you know the smallest thing that you can do without actually doing anything. Um, so that's, that that feels normally quite fast, right? Like we are talking about milliseconds there, but um, this is actually something very important for a lot of people. Like how how much time Python needs, uh, needs to just start, right. or even just import the bare minimum. The reason is because if you, for instance, implement a command line application, right? Like just typing something that you know your command and then does does help just to see the help. If that feels choppy, uh, then it's not a good experience for the user, right? Like and you know I'm sure. You can think about many of these command line applications that actually doesn't don't feel quite snappy because they are implemented in Python. Uh, there is different reasons, and you know even the ones that you know are more 
um, or they, they present more problems regarding this. Uh, they have other reasons when they are slow. But this is something that a lot of people care, like startup time, right? Right. And uh, this is something that actually some people even try to to fix. Uh, the like even there is some discussion about who came with the first idea of the solution. Uh, but uh, the the one I remember particularly myself. Uh, in the first, uh, you know, sprint that I attended, the first C Python core developer sprint, uh, it was a, a, a um, the sprint that Microsoft did in Seattle. Uh, so, so there, there is some, uh, there were some people from Facebook, in particular, a gentleman called Jethu Rao. Sorry if I'm um, mispronouncing the name, but uh, they they basically were concerned about this and they proposed an idea to basically make a startup faster. And the idea is that, okay, so you you run your kind of profilers here, I think it was just S3 or something like that, and then you just see what Python is spending the time when you start the interpreter. And it turns out that most of the time it's actually reading files. It's going to the system and then checking, is this file here? Yes, okay, can I open the file? Yes, here, you open the file. Now can I read the file? Sure. So all these file system operations are quite slow. And it are even slower in situations when the file system is slow because you're using NFS or even like, you know, it depends quite a lot. And and, and uh, even in the best cases, it's almost maybe not the best. So what they propose is that, okay, Maybe we can identify all these files that the interpreter is opening just to start, because you know when the interpreter starting needs to open like standard library files like codex.py and like abc.py and a bunch of these. And he proposed to do the same freezing mechanism as you described, uh, basically grabbing the Python uh, source uh, files, pre-compiling it to bytecode uh, plus some data structures, and then basically transpile that information to C and then compile it inside the Python executable. So the difference is that when you start Python with this work being done, then you don't need to go to the system and then try to find the files and compile the file or the PYC files and all that stuff because it will be already ready for you as exactly the data that you need uh, because it was compiled when Python started. And uh, they have like this big, big patch uh, that uh, I think Larry Hastings review or, or they were making it. Um, they they measured even like something like 20-30% improvement on the speed. Unfortunately, that went nowhere. There was some discussion about like if this was good or bad because like there were some concerns, as you mentioned, that you couldn't edit those Python files of the standard library, as we mentioned before, to yeah. the hacks and the breakpoints and whatnot. We need the hacks, right? Yeah, and also like uh, you know, the, the, there was some some uh, things that Larry did to like search for the module on C.py, issues of path, and check the dates and whatnot. But that actually end nowhere. But then the faster C Python team, like you know, very recently picked the, the idea again. Um, Mark Shannon apparently also did this or a version of this in one of the work that he did as part of his PhD thesis or some something related like that uh, in the whole pipe, uh, you know, project. Um, and uh, I think there were some other, you know, similar tools uh, that MicroPython did. So MicroPython has also the same idea of frozen modules that does more or less the same thing. They use uh, MPY files or something like that, but the idea is that you know they they, they identify a bunch of like all, a bunch of files that are needed at the startup, and they did this. Uh, obviously, the, this becomes very complicated very soon because if you want to freeze, let's say ABC.py, and that is importing more modules, then you need to freeze more than just ABC.py, right? Yes. You need to freeze all the dependencies and dependencies of the dependencies. Uh, so that is why the file that does this process is called deep freeze. Uh, Maybe someone uh, there is some obscure reason why it's called deep freeze because maybe it's frozen two times. I don't think so, but I think the idea is called deep freeze because it freezes the whole dependency chain, uh, which is different from the you know other tool called freeze. Right. So it is the word freeze six million times in the build system, but but this is basically what what this is doing. 
and increase this uh, frozen modules inside the interpreter. And you can actually see that. Like if you do import um, like ABC or import collections, I don't think collection is one of them, but you know, you get the idea. So you import one of these modules and then you just print it. So you, in the REPL, you say import ABC and then you say ABC, enter. And it will tell you module ABC. And, right. And it, it will tell you it's frozen. Uh, or frozen uh, something, right? It's the same thing as import leave. When you import import leave, it tells you frozen import leave, and that's because you know it was frozen. One of these days, I'm just gonna go and and make changes to deep freeze so that it is uh, using all the cores that I have. Like it is not gonna be like an easy change. I already looked at it. Like, is there something that I can just trivially just add, uh, um, you know, process pool executor and be done with it? But no, like it's gonna be a little more complicated. But it easily doubles my build times. Like on N one max yeah. now, like it's it's like all of this other functionality with you know configure that you already have like caching for and everything and make that is like ridiculously fast as well now. And on top of this, we have C cache, and on top of this, it also doesn't rebuild things that don't change. So those things like are very quick. And then you get to deep freeze and you wait for another ten seconds. I know it's just ten seconds, but you know, kind of uh, some people would rewrite your entire tool if 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 you're just a few seconds too slow. So you know. Like uh, one of these days, are you saying that Python is a slow Gukesh? This is what are you saying? Maybe we should show Deep Freeze to Charlie and he's gonna rewrite it in Rust. It's gonna be <laughs> rough Deep Freeze now, it's gonna be very fast. <laughs> Why not actually? All right, so that concludes the part about the import system as well as the frozen modules. Uh, those are only tangentially related, but uh, we decided to cover both because if you're going to be looking at the import system at any given point, you will discover the concept of frozen modules. So you're going to be interested how they came to be and how they function. So now, having this settled, let's talk about something completely different. What's going on? Things that happened in CPython since the last episode and when I was gathering this I already had an idea on like one or two changes that I was kind of involved in so I'm like okay there's going to be something to talk about and then I looked closer and wow like there were so many changes that right. we actually had to just pick some top changes so if yours will not be mentioned it's not that it's not important simply we just had right. to focus on just a few it failed the lottery right I don't know like Pablo let's maybe start with you uh, can you talk about like some of the changes that we had like the biggest chunk is probably the ton of work uh, landed like to support no gale so let's start there yeah of course actually this is quite impressive that we are <laughs> we are this far already I, I was uh you know, I think it was Victor Steiner who said that there is this. Uh, if if you notice some uh, some earthquake, is because a lot of the Nogil work just landed. Obviously, you know the things that we mentioned in the previous episode apply. This is still a build flag and whatnot. But for instance, one of the things uh, you know uh, uh, landed it was bias reference counts. This is something that we discussed in the previous episodes. Uh, so this is already landed. The code is there. It's uh, is running. Um, we have, I think, CI also for Nogil. So there is some machine somewhere. That, there is a bunch of billboards, right? Like you yes. help setting up some of right. the billboards. Yeah, like it, it was a little kind of complicated to set them up at first, but soon enough, like all this extra uh, kind of setup will just not be necessary because we will be able to just call them stable. Like it, it is moving pretty fast. Like right now, like with. Uh, 
Uh, okay, so so just to, to take a step back, like when we have build bots, right, our CI servers that you know actually run with very many configurations and test whether Python is uh, still in a stable state, uh, we have a ton of different configurations that we run. Um, and some of those we treat as like super serious um, parts of our infrastructure for making releases. So if any of those is read, like, you know, that would actually stop the release. Um, so we call those stable. There's a bunch of those. Um, and then there's many more that, you know, check some particular configuration or setup with some library that, for example, is uh, competing with glibc or, or some other library like that. Uh, right. right? And, and we want to run those tests as well, but if they break... Uh, it might not necessarily mean that we broke something, so we don't mark those as stable. So currently, like the mm, free-threaded, as the string council wants us to call Nogil, <laughs> right? The free-threaded. There is nothing called Nogil. Yes. It's called free-threaded Google. Exactly. Uh, we comply with the string council. Well, like, yeah, I, I, I should because fifty percent of people on this podcast are uh, sitting members <laughs> I'm of watching the, you. Uh, I'm just, but the, the only purpose I'm here oh, is just no. to watch uh, how you refer to how Nogil. many. Sometimes they sell no gill. Uh, but in any <laughs> case, so the free-threaded build bots so far, like they're not treated as stable. Obviously, there's a lot of change happening there, and it's under um, configure flag. And this is, you know, an area that is moving very quickly uh, from an accepted pep, of course. But it's still, you know, uh, not entirely stable, and we're very far from um, Python three thirteen uh, for now, at least. Like, it's, I, I'm pretty sure, like famous last words, like it's gonna be May, and you know. Uh, very quickly, but so far, like we, we we didn't mark them stable, but looks like we might um, very soon. Since yeah, like biased ref counts are already in. Uh, Mimaloc was added as well, right? Yeah, Mimaloc landed as well. That's that's quite cool. Uh, I think we we mentioned it very quickly last last episode, but I don't think we went into a lot of detail. Right. Uh, what is Mimalo Gugesh? Well, um, so th this is the Microsoft allocator, and in fact, Christian Hymas just last year like already wanted it as part of Python, not uh, tied to free-threaded Python, but just as a way to make the allocations in Python faster. And also, ThreadSafe, that is kind of only for three-threading, right? But also aware of non-uniform memory access, something that you might not really think about like when you have your phone or your laptop, but something that is actually very useful when you're running servers. So, you know, like some of the contemporary processors like Epic uh, from AMD and so on, and Threadrippers actually, so you can have this on the desktop, uh, they can access their own local memory. So like a core or a processor in a multiprocessor system can access its own kind of designated memory faster than non-local memory. Uh, so there is only some pool of shared memory, but every processor also has uh, its own. And this needs support from the operating system, but Above this, like you know, the processes that are running on such an operating system need need to also plug into that. So Java Seven already has a memory allocator uh, that can uh, work faster with those non-uniform memory accesses, so like Numa, right? Uh, right. So like a modern server, like you know, can actually use this, right? And when you have say containers, right, like you can actually just make sure that they always run on the same processors, right, right? or or on the same cores. 
that's called processor affinity. That's something that we've had for quite a while. Right. But now you also have with Numa memory affinity, where you can say you just use this pool of memory, and like actually combining the two allows hypervisors to actually you know increase you know observable performance by containers uh, by quite a bit. There's papers by AMD about this and whatnot. But in any case, like so far. The uh, allocator we've had, PyMalloc, was entirely oblivious of all of this advancement, right? And MeMalloc is something that actually allows us to tap into this. So not just for free threading, this should also be faster for server usage, which I'm pretty excited about. And yeah, and we already kind of covered this uh, when talking about PEP 703, where uh, we have now built-in free lists with multi-sharding, there's um, multiple allocation heaps, and so on and so on. Uh, so it uses some atomic instructions, like compare and swap. Uh, so it's not just uh, thread safe, but it's um, actually efficient, uh, and so on and so on. But you know, it doesn't work everywhere that CPython currently builds on, but it works on the majority of platforms. It requires... Well, that sounds very ominous, but like it works on most modern systems. Uh, like, uh, you know, like in the sense that you don't need like anything super, super special. Like, um, all compilers like certainly won't work because, you know, we require some higher um, C standard. Exactly, I think it's not as easy to say as C11 because the C standard stuff is just a mess because you can be compliant with C11 but not C99, like the Microsoft compiler, I think it does, or the other way around. The the atomics uh, that I was talking about, like, you know, that that requires a relatively recent compiler. But, you know, kind of, uh, if you're running a relatively recent Red Hat or whatever else, like, you should be fine. Right. I think uh, it's AAX is one of the systems that don't support this out of the box or one of the oldest ones. Um, but yes, like, who, who cares about the AAX, right? <laughs> who cares um, about it? Yeah. Right, exactly. yeah. Um, yeah, so Mimaloc is is quite cool actually. Um, I think we we I, I ran I was working with um, Christian Himes when he did the first benchmarks, and what we experienced is that the default obviously we, we were not running servers with cool Numa, we were running of like old people laptops. But like um, um, we we experienced no uh, speed ups nor any slowdowns, which you will say why that's that's kind of not very exciting. But on on the opposite, that's actually very exciting that we saw the switching the Python. PyMalloc allocator for MiMalloc did no difference. And the reason is because PyMalloc is specifically tuned to be very fast when you do this kind of uh, very specific patterns that we do in CPython, like you know, very fast uh, object allocation or deallocation for objects that are very small. Uh, like other general allocators like malloc, like from libc, uh, glibc, um, they are very generic. They are trying to be the best possible allocators in all cases, which means that obviously it's not the best for specific patterns. Right. And the fact that the malloc was not as low than pymalloc uh, is very is very interesting because mimalloc is still a very generic allocator in the sense that it doesn't. You know, it's not it's not branded as or oh, allocator for you know um, interpreted languages, right, or, or for things like that. So, right. so that speaks really good about Mimaloc. Um, it's not going to be like wow, now Python is much much faster. Obviously, we have all these features that you mentioned about this potion, and you know the Nogil work needs it. But um, one of the things that we can do in the future, maybe, is to just remove all the code from Pymaloc because we actually don't need it. And it doesn't hurt uh, in the long run to just use Mimaloc all the time. Even meanwhile, we are actually trans uh, transitioning to the free threading uh, work, right? Yeah, which brings me to when we had the global interpreter lock, 
uh, the way you denoted that you need to synchronize something, like you just held the global interpreter lock, right? And that was in many cases done like for you. Uh, but you know, in the C in the C API, you had uh, APIs to uh, free the lock and to hold it again, and that was it. Now, if there is not a global lock. Like what are you supposed to do? So one of the changes that just landed super recently is critical sections. So something that you might remember from your OS classes at university, like, you know, uh, not, not, not super easy if you're really thinking about this, but there is now a critical sections in the Python C API. Pi begin critical section on an object or two, um, and then you can by end a critical section. So essentially helpers to replace the global interpreter lock with finer grained locking. Right. So you can provide similar guarantees to the GIL, right? So we actually have a better solution than just regular fine grained locks because that kind of avoids some of deadlocks that we can have. Not all of them, but the one thing that it uh, it can um, fix is, for example, uh, when you are uh, nesting critical sections, like that will actually automatically uh, do the interleaving that is necessary for this to work. So right. that was a very impressive um, uh, comment. You know, we have the PR like with uh, quite a lot of comments on the review there. So yeah, like impressive work just added just now. Right, That's, that is very good, and this is a very tricky thing, right? Like just for for clarifying what the problem was is that if you say, oh, now that we don't have the big lock, let's substitute that by smaller locks, uh, maybe it comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but uh, if you have a regular lock and you lock it twice, the second operation actually blocks forever. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not an op. So if you have a place when you acquire the yield and then you have another function called inside that place that also acquires the yield right now, that doesn't uh, block forever because the yield has some yeah. specific semantics for that. But if you substitute this in by normal locks, then the second call will block forever and we don't want that. And these critical sections allow you to basically extensions to behave more or less like when the yield was there. Uh, without having to implement all the regular locks, uh, you know, it skips the performance problem and also the you know the lock problem, which is you know very good. Um, some other change that I'm very excited about uh, is the fact that uh, some interpreters can now share tuples, which may look like a <laughs> very small feat, but it's the beginning of a, what I hope is a very you know um, fantastic trend uh, because right now, as you know. If you want to share uh, objects from one subinterpreter to another, and subinterpreters are this new thing that we added in Python 3.12, uh, that Eric's now worked really hard to, to get there and others. Um, so, this is an alternative to multiprocessing. So, clarification um, subinterpreters have been there for quite a while. What they have now oh, sorry, is yeah. they have each own has its own global lock, its own GIL. Yeah. Yes, sorry, that's that's the correct thing. Yeah. People say that, but then on the other hand, like the API was really restrictive, right? right. Like, like I know that um, the what is the name of this package that runs like web servers? Uh, whiskey, 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 mod whiskey, mod whiskey, yeah, yes. mod whiskey. So I think those people were using some interpreters even from long ago, right? Um, but anyway, now you know they are more feature complete. Now they do the actual thing that you expect them to do, which is run independently of each other, so you can actually use them as an alternative to. Uh, threads and processes, um, but if you want to send objects from one to the other, or use you you know objects from one some interpreter to another, you need to serialize those objects. So you need to transform them to bytes and decode them in the other side to make a copy. 
So, you know, not as exciting as threads that can share the objects, but now uh, with this change, some interpreters can share tuples. Uh, there is some caveats uh, because the same way you can, uh, you know, tuples are hashable unless they contain no hashable objects. You can totally put a list into a, inside that tuple and then it's not hashable because the list is not hashable. So if you have tuples that contain, you know, other tuples, uh, they can be shareable as long as the tuples themselves are shareable. Um, and then you can have other types that are shareable, like strings, bytes, integers, floats, all the all the kind of like you know um, uh, immutable stuff. And this is very exciting because the more objects you can start like uh, uh, to share between some interpreters, the less copies you need to do. So it's not only faster, but also uses less memory. And the more it appears to be like a very very enticing alternative to uh, multiprocessing. Right. Yeah. So so as long as they are immutable, right? They, then essentially both interpreters can uh, read the data correctly. And before we only had like basic types, right? And now tuples is the first one uh, that allows us to actually organize information, right? So it's a, it's a, some structural, right. you know, data structure. Uh, but the, you know, the funny thing is, uh, you know, obviously. A tuple can hold whatever. It can hold a list. It can hold an object. So what happens if you try to actually share an object like that? And this is handled. Like in that case, there's going to be an exception saying like, "Well, I'm sorry, but this particular tuple is a little too complex for now." Uh, but still, you can have nested tuples, and uh, if those tuples end actually having only simple types that are supported right now, right? So like bytes, integers, floats, booleans, and none, and strings. Like floats were just also recently added, so like all of this uh, you can already use uh, to build non-trivial applications. Um, like this is this is a start of you know uh, subinterpreters being actually usable for production code. Right, and we have some exciting changes actually on the evaluation loop, right? Like, right. Yes. Can you tell us some of those? Right. So um, we already talked about our. Um, you know, a trip to Brno and how uh, there's talk about having a JIT in Python. So how does that compose with, already, with what we already had? So now we call the entire interpreter as we had before, including the specializations that we knew before, as tier one. This is the classic standard old interpreter that we had, which executes the Python bytecode you know. Right? This is the kind of tier one simple thing. Now we have this new tier introduced called tier 2, which does not run Python bytecode, it runs micro-instructions. We call them uops, uh, and those are the basis of what we're going to actually just-in-time compile later with the copy and patch um, approach that we were discussing in episode 1. So what we had uh, so far already after the sprint was Tier 1 and Tier 2 uh, coexisted, but they were separate files. Um, they could um, call to one another. But Mark Shannon was unhappy about the state of things there. And the reason why was um, he, he observed that a function call is kind of um, limiting in what you can do because it can accept many arguments, but it can only return one value at a time. And this was not really good for a bunch of reasons. So now Guido made this big change where he brought um, the tier 2 interpreter inside uh, PyEval eval frame default. So now this is kind of intermingled. It still looks reasonably you know, readable, even though now this file uh, is, is larger than it was before. 
Uh, but that will allow tier one and tier two to switch um, more granularly when that's needed, right? You can follow some of those uh, ideas that the uh, Faster Python team has on this uh, in their own bug tracker that they have for uh, kind of planning their work. Uh, but yeah, like that was that was a very exciting change to see just this time around. Right. Another change that uh, well is, is in the making, uh, but I wanted to mention it here just because I, I was very excited. Is that um, so? As you know, Python three twelve uh, we added support for the Linux profiler, which is like super exciting. And you know, we like a lot of people are starting to use it actually. Like I heard from from Meta, they are playing with it and they are actually contributing some some ideas. But unfortunately, one of the caveats here is that you need to compile C Python in a specific way. You may already be uh, you, you may be already compiling it this way, but uh, a lot of distributions don't, which is with these uh, frame pointers. That doesn't matter. We are not going to into detail. It's just that it has this restriction that you need to ensure that when you compile C Python, you add these frame point, frame pointers. And unfortunately, this is like, this makes Python a bit slower. Uh, but uh, for most of these profilers, uh, you need you need these uh, frame pointers anyway. So you know it's almost like a require for for these profilers to work. And this includes others other than perf called eBPF based profilers. But anyway, um, so the perf can actually work without this. And instead of like doing the super fast you know frame pointer traversal to get the whole stack, uh, it uses uh, dwarf information, which is the debugging information that is included in binaries. Um, this is a much slower method because when when perf is using this dwarf information to retrieve the stack, so the, the you know who call who when when some event happens, it needs to copy the entire stack. This is not the stack of pointers. This is the stack of all everything, so the data and everything that is on the on the stack of the. Um, of the process that is running, and then later he analyzes this stack, reads the dwarf information, and, and tells you who is calling who, and it shows you into the flame graph or whatever, right? Uh, but unfortunately, the the work that we did in Python to make it compatible with uh, perf didn't uh, work with this particular case because you, we are JIT compiling code uh, to make it work, and we are not including debugging information from the JIT. Uh, so for a long time, like I tried to search like a solution that is not just doing this debug information. Because let me tell you something: creating that debug information is just hell. Like, <laughs> like it's real hell. Like it's extremely annoying. It's it's extremely undocumented. And the failure mode is it just doesn't work. So it doesn't tell you, oh, you forgot here, like a number three. Like it's not no. Like that's the that's the only answer that you get from the tool. Uh, so I was talking with Carl from the PyPy team. Uh, and uh, we were like, you know, bouncing ideas, and uh, we were checking how PyPyJIT works because somehow PyPy more or less does some some stuff. We discovered that then it was less less exciting than initially looked, but like it was super helpful. And we started analyzing how other VMs do this. Uh, for instance, the V8 engine, which is the um, you know all the, the VM that uh, JavaScript uses, right? Like the Google Chrome, I think, is the one using V8, right? Yes. Right, so so it turns out that the V8 people actually talk with the Perf team uh, to implement a bunch of specific interfaces that seems that they only use, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, and I was analyzing the code in V8 how to do this, and I found an extremely hacky way to kind of trick Perf with half dwarf. So I actually you know sit down and wrote the dwarf thing. It's just half of it, and it turns out that with half of it, it kind of works. Um, and I'm super excited because maybe for Python 3.13 uh, you can actually use it. You know, it's still inferior to half frame pointers, but it, at least it works. 
Um, and you can actually use perf uh, with the dwarf information by using well, half the bugging information. You already mentioned this on this podcast, so it's not maybe like now you have to make it work for three thirteen. It's not an option. Right, right. I'm I'm ninety nine percent. It will be there. Uh, I just need to double check that everything works because let me tell you something. When the failure mode is just the tool saying no, the moment it works, man, you just you just like <laughs> celebrate like crazy, man. I was just not believing it. I can imagine. So. I still need to, you know, I, I sat on the computer, it's there, sitting there on the hard drive, nicely there. So I just need to boot it again and check that I was not, you know, like hallucinating things and actually it is doing the thing. But if it's doing it, I'm quite sure uh, it probably will go into C13. So I just need to do the PR. Speaking of Carl Friedrich, uh, he did add um, a thing to CPython now that doesn't sound like it's super awesome at first. But it is. So now Unicode data code point names are stored using a dog or really a directed acyclic word graph. But we do have a dog.py file now <laughs> in the CPython repository, which uh, Brand found amusing. I also found it amusing. So so yes. But as issue what that means is uh, what, what does this do? Yeah, it, it's it's like a smarter, more Space efficient prefix tree. So ah, the, try. The, the, the real one, no? Right, yeah. Right, right. So, it. like, you know, it's this directed acyclic word graph. And what it can do is it will use fewer vertices to store the same data because it can just reuse the paths that you already had. So, it's pretty efficient. But what that means is the names are now encoded into pack strings. So, you know, essentially just, you know, and that represents the entire machine needed, the finite state machine needed to recognize whether something is a valid name, but also to map a name to an index. So essentially, it still works as it was before if you needed to know which code point is called, I don't know, a snowman or whatever. But now this is smaller by over 400 kilobytes. Doesn't sound like much, but if you actually have all this in memory and multiple times over because you have multiple processes, or if you are moving Python to somebody's computer via web because you're using WebAssembly or you're using PyScript, now you can use nearly half a meg less for essentially the same information. So that's pretty impressive. I think this will actually help us spread Python in the web use, which I'm very excited about. So that was a pretty cool change. It took us quite a while to review it because uh, the algorithm to turn our raw data from the downloaded from unicode.org into this form is pretty complicated, but then you also have to implement and see this uh, lookup algorithm that actually uses this representation to check whether a name exists or not. And as far as we can tell, because there is a test literally in the test suite checking all the names, so we are actually finding all the names that are in the Unicode database and checking that that works perfectly fine. Um, so this we know, like maybe there is going to be a bug where we would actually return a code point for some name that is invalid, but you know some random, you know, a combination of characters would actually uh, yield a code point, even though it shouldn't be found there. Uh, but you know, it is extremely unlikely from the code review that we've gotten. Like we asked Dennis Sweeney, also like a heavy hitter 
contributor to review this code. We're pretty confident it's good, but it is essentially harder to prove a negative than to actually prove that it works like with the, with the test. There is no test possibly that we can write to say no possible combination of characters that is not in the Unicode database will yield a code point. So this was right, this was right. a challenge to review. Right. So thanks, thanks uh, everyone here, and thanks Carl for the, for the help there. Um, I think we need to to uh, mention the last uh, the last things a bit faster, just not to you know go over like six million hours in the podcast as much as we like to talk. Uh, one change that is quite tricky actually to to produce. Uh, I'm very happy that we are we are doing it. That um, thread.join now waits for the actual underlying thread before exiting. Uh, this may seem like a you know like wh why is this important? Like you know at the end of the day when you uh, call join or what CPython does is that it waits for all the Python code to finish. And then you know the, it, after that happens, the thread is still there because Python act, didn't actually create the thread. It uses like all the threading API from the underlying OS, which are different in Windows, Mac OS, and, and, and Linux. Um, and pthreads and not pthreads and whatnot. Uh, but you know, at the end, when Python finishes, uh, the thread is going to die, but it still does a bunch of things before that, right? So it still lingers there, and we never wait for it. Uh, and it really didn't matter because this code actually is very small. But now, like you know, there is a bunch of things that we're doing on Python um, three twelve that make this change quite important. For instance, in Python three twelve, we are now emitting warnings if you call OS fork. Uh, and there are threads around. And why is this important? Well, because OS.fork only f like like it creates a new process, a new copy of your process, but only the thread that is running. Yeah. And this is very important. Uh, it's very important because if you have locks, for instance, lying around, and other threads have the locks, uh, those locks are now useless. Like, and you can you know you can deadlock uh, if they were in a lock state. So you don't want that. So right now we we warn, and then you call OS.fork. We say, man, you have all these threads like running around. And those are not being for right, but obviously, if we were not able to deterministically know if Python has finished for real with the thread, uh, this warning is not not the best it could be. So now we have all the machinery needed to you know like know when when the thread is really done and the OS has finally finished with with the thread. So so the warning makes sense and all like we can know it deterministically. Right. Yes. Yeah. So now we will be able to actually write correct code that we know is correct and does not raise the warning. So. 3.12 is going to be just a little annoying in that regard because it does raise the warning, but you know, in, in some cases we won't be able uh, to actually make sure that you know there is no warning raised. Uh, right, uh, we actually have something new for you as well, which is... A short section on a PR of the week by each of us. So this doesn't happen every time. We don't actually produce code every week. I review and do like internal tooling and set up build bots and whatever. But every now and again, there would be a change that I would be kind of passionate about. Pablo as well. Like you know, he already talked about his, but you know, he gets another one, I guess. Wow. Let's be fair. Let's 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 give you another one. Wait wait wait. Sorry, I, I have to intercede. Yes. Like I think I'm. We are still in the bounds of legality because this section is called PR of the week, and he's talking about a PR that not is already there, but it's also merged, hopefully. But the perf work that I mentioned is not even a PR. <laughs> so, so, so the work is there, but it could have never been a PR of the week, you see? Like, um, totally legal. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I somehow find find this, this objection. Pablo did it again. But since you're already talking, you might as well start with your PR of the week. What a segue. 
Okay. Uh, so, so my PR of the week, uh, I will spare you the number, uh, is uh, about speeding up uh, traceback object creation. And turns out that uh, some time ago, man, this is so funny. So some time ago, we have this um, funny bug report, I think for 3.11, uh, and obviously also 3.12, that uh, if you if you raise an exception, right? So you say raise, like by, because you do it or because it happens. So for instance, you access a list out of bounds or because you say raise something. Turns out that if you measure the time the interpreter takes to raise the exception, it was longer the more uh, instructions there were in the function. So if you raise an exception, <laughs> exception at the beginning of the function, it was much faster than if you raise the same exception at the end of the function. Interesting, man. This this was crazy. Like um, they, like the, there is some data here that I have. Um, so depending on the number of statements that you have in your program, uh, obviously the reality doesn't really measure in statements, but you know it gives you a good proxy. Like with 100 statements, uh, raising an exception in this particular system takes uh, 2.7 microseconds, but uh, with uh, 100,000 uh, statements, it takes 2,700 microseconds. So it's just it's just it's just a lot. I mean, you know, it's not going to cause like a huge amount of difference, but like the fact that the, the raising an exception, the time it takes. It changes depending on the position is quite surprising first and then a bit like concerning. Turns out that what's happening is that you know when we raise an exception, we need to tell you the line number of the you know in the source code that raised the exception because when yes. we show the traceback, you know you you can look at this information and we can show you the number. And since Python three eleven, because we did this this work for uh, you know like uh, ensuring that we store column positions so we can show you the fancy tracebacks. Turns out that that information that maps from bytecode position to the line number is encoded in this like compressed table because there is a lot of data there and we cannot just have it lying around because most of the line numbers are going to be the same, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there is this compressed data and when we need to find where is the line that corresponds to a certain bytecode instruction, we need to go there and then decompress the data and find where is the line number. And this obviously takes time the farther you are because like when you start decompressing the data, if it's one of the first uh, instructions, then you don't need to decompress the whole thing, nice. right? Because, you know, it's going to be very early in the stream of data, but if it's in one of the longest, longest instructions, you need to decompress everything because the way the compression works, like makes like chunks farther away depend on previous chunks. So you need to decompress the, yeah. you know, the start. Uh, so that was that, that was what was happening, and you know, the fix was actually quite simple. It was just making this calculation lazy because you actually don't need the line number until you need to show the line, and that only happens if the exception bubbles up to top level or if someone just happens to ask for it. Uh, so, so we transform the the line number into a descriptor, uh, which you know triggers lazily, and you know just raising exceptions doesn't trigger the calculation on line numbers. Uh, it just it just you know only when when the exception bubbles up, then it just triggers it. So we only do it when it's strictly necessary. That was a fun change to yeah. do, and it makes Python a bit faster. Actually, it's Very measurable cool. in my performance, which is quite cool. Yeah, I also have a change that makes something faster, but it's uh, mostly for our internal use. Uh, so there's this uh, pep669, which is a really nice way to uh, monitor Python. It's faster than tracing. Um, it is uh, more pluggable with a nicer API and so on and so on. So now we are using it to power test coverage of the standard library. So this needed some support that I added at the sprint with the ability to run code before site py. So if you were confused before, like what am I talking about? Um, you know about site py in this episode, 
fortunately, we are past this and you understand everything, right? Site PY is this strange moment where suddenly we start importing Python modules and we're enabling site packages and so on and so on and doing a bunch of other stuff, right? So if you really want to measure coverage correctly of the standard library, you need to plug into that just before site py is executed. So that functionality was added before, and now the actual change to change our test suite, to change our test runner, to allow to use this, that I did now. And you know, the, the fun thing about this is that this is already uh, measurably like five times faster if you are using sys monitoring compared to what we had before. So the trace module that you can find in Stein library, that's what the regression test suite uses internally. And that is still left uh, for when we're running tests sequentially. But a new thing that was not possible before was gathering coverage when you're using worker processes. So if you run your regression tests with dash J, so with many processes uh, at the same time so that it's faster, now it will collect pieces of coverage and then combine them, aggregate them together and just present you with a correct uh, summary of everything. So this allows the entire coverage gathering to be so much faster that, you know, kind of, I, let me just leave you with some numbers. Like before, I don't think anybody was using coverage reporting on the entire test suite because it only worked in sequential uh, mode and used the slow trace uh, module. So that took a few hours to complete. It took over two hours to complete on my M1 Max um, Jesus. Mac. But the problem was that I couldn't even finish the tests because if you're running them in sequential mode, every time something happens that crashes the interpreter, well, your test runner also crashed so you didn't finish. You actually cannot show any sort of coverage. So I tried Linux, I tried Macs, like different kind of versions and so on and so on, and found that there was some issue with gathering coverage and with sequential runs on every platform I tried. So I'm pretty sure people were only using this for pointed coverage results for a particular library and not running it over everything. And now you can run it and with just J1, meaning you're only using one worker process, like this runs in nine and a half minutes for me. So it's like, it's, wow. it's pretty cool. Like it's like, it's pretty fast. My strategy is that now people will think you uh, added the sound and not myself. <laughs> That's all good. Yeah. So you know, kind of, it is it is fast enough that I imagine people will start actually using it now. So obviously, what we need is not some report that tell us like, oh no, we just need this number to be one hundred percent all the time. Even though for a programming language, we would have really higher standards than most uh, external projects, right? But what we really want to know is when we're doing larger changes over uh, tests or over libraries, some refactors and so on, that before and after are not regressing our coverage too, right? So like that way, I do hope that people will use this more accurately and like faster and so on and so on. Um, so yeah, like that was a change that I was very happy to see because I mostly wanted the coverage numbers to just be correct 
and the additional speed and support for worker processes are just like cherry on the cake, but that cherry is almost as big as the cake for me like at this point. Oh, right, right, right. I think this change is super cool. I think it's super cool. I'm so happy because like indeed, like I was one of those persons that were not running this just because like it just takes forever and like it has so many failure modes. So I'm I'm very happy that now we can actually leverage this. Maybe we can even add it to the CI in some way of form. We should, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Okay, that's everything we have for today. We already passed the hour mark again. Uh, one episode is going to be under 60 minutes and then you'll know we really ran out of stuff to talk about. But no, not today. Not today, Satan. Not today. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we will love if you also reach to us to tell us what you think about this episode. So maybe, you know, you, you want more or less. Uh, what, 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 what topics do you find interesting? You know, more more uh, super technical details, more high-level battle stories of all people. Uh, what do you find interesting? Tell us uh, the uh, way you prefer. And that's everything we have. So thank you for listening. See you next time. See you next time. Mm-hmm.